Squash Tourist and Friends podcast, series two. Well, today we've we've gone big, we've gone A list, we've got managed to lock down one of the most requested guests. It's uh, it's Robert Owen, and we have managed to get him in for a, a significant chat, which is going to have to be uh, serialised, I think. So. Uh, yeah, I think this is going to be pretty popular and uh, I'm very entertaining. He certainly had me in, in fits of uh, fits of laughter, as he always does. Um, for people that don't know him, he's, uh, he's a very candid, hard-talking, uh, straight-to-the-point guy. And it's really interesting to have his, uh, ask him his thoughts on, on squash and on, uh, on, on sport and general life. Uh, and you know, get yourself into, uh, into his psyche a little bit and, uh, and see how he ticks. So um, please do get in touch and let me know what you think of the first episode. Robbie, we're in the studio. Hi Jake, good to see you again. An absolute it's been pleasure, a long time. Yeah. I'm really hoping this uh, this wait is worth your while because uh, I'll keep hanging on for about four months, haven't I? Um, Exactly, yeah. You were, you were, yeah, one of the top uh, top guests, obviously. When I uh, when I dreamed. What do you mean? What do you mean? What? And let me stop you straight away before we get this off to a bad start. What do you mean, one of the top guests? You were the number one top guest. You were. Yeah, the that's top that's guest. better. That's better. Yeah. Let's get the, let's get it off to a good start. I've had uh, certainly had a lot of requests. You're the only person who's yeah whose name comes up when there are requests. Yeah. So. Well, I was uh, I was intrigued, obviously, because I was very pleased to see you doing some uh, podcasts. Um, there's some desperate, desperate drivel out there, isn't it, Jay? I mean, it's um, it's been a godsend for me, to be honest, this lockdown, because I mean, some of these podcasts that have been going with the squash guys, I've been suffering from terrible insomnia for about a couple of years. And I've just put on tonight, just put on tonight, Bobby and the Wolf, um, and literally I sleep like a baby. It's, it's fantastic, you know. So there, there's some, it's been brilliant, all these podcasts going out. So it's nice to see something different that you can actually listen to. It's a bit interesting with some different guests on, isn't it? Well, yeah, everyone, everyone's having a crack at it. Um, I'm just trying to become a, you know, sort of talk about what I know and uh and there's definitely a bit of a calamitous t- uh, element to the first few with the likes of Trezor and uh and those guys but you know sort of write about what you know organized chaos organized exactly. chaos that's what we want yeah but this is uh yeah quite an esteemed guest getting getting someone on of your of your caliber this is this and we might get into double figures here for <laughs> Yeah, well, at the moment we can count on one hand, but I mean, maybe we can use our feet as well at the end of this one. Um, hopefully, we'll get a few uh, few listeners, but I very much doubt it. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, this is all, this is as close as we've been to uh, to being able to enjoy one of our one of our lunches, one of our many lunches that we used to. Do after yeah, it's been far there. too long. It's been far too long, Joe. Obviously, we've uh, loved our times together and uh, some good lunches together. Um, happy days, happy memories, and we've had some great squash times. We've had some great social times, which is what it's, what it's about, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I see that the the, uh, the academy has certainly uh, gone up a few notches since uh, since since my day. Yeah, don't knock it, Jay. I mean, you were one of the uh, founder members, weren't you? Um, yes, sir. Yeah. You know, you and Heine. Well, I'm going to be honest. If you've just a who's who, the guest list you've had on, isn't it? For people that started off with me, you know, <laughs> Trezor, Heinz, uh, Ryder, um, all great characters and good lads. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time when I first started. In some ways, it was um, it was brilliant. I almost prefer it to now. It was. I'm not saying it wasn't professional, but it was just great sort of start off you guys. It was it was fairly new for me as well. Um, so it was a learning process and it was just fantastic. Because obviously it was very different for the people I get now, um, who without being rude to you guys are probably of a younger generation. Um, yeah. I mean, most of, you, most of you at that stage were virtually coffin dodgers. 
um, <laughs> you know, going around on crutches and stuff and near semi-retirement or retirement. So, but I had a good sort of four or five, six years with some of you guys. Yeah. Uh, and it was fantastic trying to actually sort of get somebody who's 28, 27 years old to improve them and actually sort of make them better squash players and understand the game. And it was a very enjoyable process and all different characters as well. You were already moulded, yeah. weren't you, in many ways? Definitely, well, yeah. Not only were we passed it, but we were sort of, we were damaged goods as well. So <laughs> it was... Yeah, you were damaged goods. I mean, you know, if, if I'd ordered... If I'd ordered you off Amazon, I'd have probably sent you all back, obviously. Um, <laughs> and I got, got, got a better model, a newer model the next day, um, pretty quickly, which is actually what I've done now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just certainly a higher class for sure, a bit more professional, probably, like of Paul and Nella. Yeah, look, I don't know about that. I mean, you guys in your own way, it was, it was, it, it was, it's that sort of background, isn't it? And professionalism is a funny word. Everyone has different levels of professionalism. It depends how you define professionalism. Um, and it's what you want out of sports and what you want to make of it. Um, but you know, you, all you guys are great to work with. I thoroughly enjoyed it. How's uh, how's lockdown been then for you? Lockdown has been interesting. Um, I mean, for me personally, um, it's been very good in many ways. I mean, obviously, I'm very lucky that some of the sort of people are just involved in squash, and I feel sorry for the guys either just playing or just coaching. Um, I've got a lot of strings to my bow, and squash has always been a passion and a pleasure for me. Um, so I've actually been able to do my what I would call inverted commas my proper job. Um, as you know, I'm a professional gambler. Um, I've invested in the markets. Um, I've invested in a couple of art galleries, which has been great fun, buying and selling some art. Bought, bought a few Banksies, bought four Banksies in the lockdown period, um, which has been good. I love my art. Um, and I enjoy working on the markets and doing... So for me, financially, I've probably... It's the first time I've earned, what I'd say, probably for the last for 10 years since I first started squash coaching. So it's a new situation because most of the guys are struggling where I probably earned 20 times more in this lockdown than I would have done if I was coaching the squash players. Um, but obviously I've missed the squash. Um, that's my passion. I do it. It's, I do it for love, um, not for financial rewards. And it's something I've always loved doing. Yeah. And so you managed to uh, sidestep the, uh, the, the lack of not been not been as much racing as much much uh, professional sport as you probably would have yeah there's been a fair bit of sport on for me as I say I've done a lot on the financial markets I've messed around on that and uh, that's been interesting um, so they're pretty long days but I enjoy that I've been managed, I've used my brain a lot more than probably when I was playing squash uh, when I was coaching the squash but I've I've been speaking to players a lot um, spoke to all my players I mean some you speak to more than others um, yeah. some want to speak to you more and some don't so everyone's different but it's uh, it's a tough job because obviously it's a long process now and it's dragging on you know, obviously everyone was very enthusiastic to start with and, and that process has got probably harder and harder as there's you know more bad news around the corner and there's another lockdown and you know clubs are closing and you know it's very easy to get yourself a bit down about it and you've got to just try and stay positive um think the long term but obviously the future squash you know it's it's gonna be difficult you know there's no point pretending and i think some people are overly positive and they always think everything's going to come back normal and life has changed for good probably in many ways um yeah. for people working working from home, etc. Sport's going to change the way we view sports, the way people play sports. Um, and this is going to be, you know, going on for a long period, even if there's a vaccine, uh, life has changed. Yeah, definitely. I guess, you know, it depends where you are. Is it, in terms of your, your squash career, if you want to know, I mean, if it had been me and I was still playing, I, I would have been an absolute disaster. But for people like Charlie, if they can, uh, they've still got years on their side where they can, if they can get through this, it could be, you know, like I say, can take the positives from it and uh you know try and make the best of a good bad situation yeah i feel desperately sorry for the for the young lad starting off and the young lady starting off it's 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 really brutal because obviously really realistically i don't think there's been any tournaments this year uh so this season i mean 
Um, probably up to April. Certainly not for those guys. The top guys are okay. But of course, they're suffering because there's no leagues and exhibitions and all the rest of it. And there's not as many tournaments. But people like Charlie, you mentioned there, and some of the young player coach, there isn't a lot for them. You know, the junior tournaments have all been cancelled. Um, and they, they've just got to try and train hard and work hard. And of course, I'm like Charlie's got huge potential. Um, so I'll encourage him. But some of the players uh, have got jobs. You know, they're working and some have gone to university to open university courses, this sort of thing. And I, I encourage everyone in a different way. You know, I've encouraged some people to get jobs and work and, you know, use their brains in other ways. It's not a bad thing. They can come back to squash anytime, um, especially the young ones who are 19, 20, they can, 22, 23 people start playing later these days. In my day, when started yeah. playing at 16, 17, a little different. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that definitely they can, uh, yeah, they can make, you know, it's a good chance to catch up, isn't it? And work work on some, no, no, work on some uh, physical side of it, like something like Charlie getting himself healthy. If there was a bloody squash court open, Jamie, that'd be great, wouldn't it? But uh, it's not so easy to work. There's no courts open. So it has been difficult. There has been periods where we literally can't get on court. Um, and someone like myself, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult because obviously the COVID situation around, you don't want to get it. Um, you have to be careful. I mean, if I get COVID, I'm finished. I've probably got six weeks to live, mate. This could be my last ever interview. Um, you know, I really will be, I'll be wiped out. So I don't want to particularly get it, but I'm still going on court and trying to be sensible. Um, but we can't do as much as you want. I mean, I've something like Paul Collars, obviously in Amsterdam and Baylor. Uh, I've basically been coaching them by, by video and talking to them a lot, um, going through stuff. But it, you can't replace that being on court with people. You know, anybody who's been on court with me would tell you that, uh, you know, when someone's feeding the ball tight again and again and again with a high intensity, um, they're not quite sure the ball's going. There's an input, even if it's little things. You know, I, had a, I was fortunate to have Naylor over um, for a week or so, not long ago. And there was just a lot, a few simple things she was doing wrong. And they, they, were, they were all small things, but they made a huge difference when you put them all together. Probably, uh, little... like my brother's been fading, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah, well, that's obviously, yeah, I didn't realise that. If I'd known that, I'd have put a stop to that, obviously. Um, but uh, no, no, she did mention that, actually. And I must speak to him and uh, mention a few of the things that we worked on. But um, I mean, she's a, she's a fantastic worker. She's got a great work ethic. But of course, if you're working on the wrong things and things aren't quite right, all you're doing is grooming bad habits. Um, so it is important that I see those players. Um, and the more I see them, the more I'm there, the more you can just sort of notice little things. Um, and one of my strengths, I would say, is probably my attention to detail. I do pick up on small things that other people don't do. And that's obviously my job on a daily basis, uh, looking at sort of strike patterns of horses, wherever it might be, or very small details that make a big difference. Um, so I'm lucky that I've actually got that sort of attention detail, but a lot of players don't have it themselves. Some do, um, but some don't. But it's they can obviously learn. But I need to be on court with them on a regular basis doing that. Yeah. Um, more importantly, on to uh, so has it been not been able to get into the Michelin star uh, restaurants for lunch? What's what's been uh, what's been happening? Well, there? it hasn't been too it hasn't been too uh, bad, Jamie, because I've had three Michelin star takeaways this week. Um, <laughs> I'm currently at my holiday house in Devon. Um, there's a lovely, beautiful Michelin star restaurant called The Elephant. Uh, they do a takeaway twice a week, um, which is fantastic. Three courses. Um, of course, I order it twice. So there's actually six courses. I just double up. Um, and then, of course, there's the theme of this curry house in Birmingham, which I use, which delivered today. That was, tw that was 12 courses they sent down to me today. Um, they deliver once a week. So I I'm getting by, I think. I mean, you can, the viewers won't be able to see me, but you can see me. And you can see that I haven't wasted away in lockdown. No, you, you look you're looking looking well, looking pretty relaxed there. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, long is it? Well, well is the wrong word. Well is the wrong word, but um, I'm looking well fed. Is probably what you meant. As long as you got a microwave at hand, you're, uh, you're, you're absolutely. Got a microwave, yeah, and everything's done about six minutes. Um, so <laughs> the technology is frazzled. There was a 
it's a 10, 10 course Indian, isn't it? So it's a good solid hour for the microwave. <laughs> it takes a while, yeah, yeah. I have a conveyor belt system going, which, which works pretty well. But no, as you know, I love my food and I, I like going to restaurants and I like my sort of lunches with friends. Um, and that's something I thoroughly enjoy. And of course, we've all missed that. And the social side of this thing has been one of the terrible things, you know, and we talk about the, you know, having been stuck inside and not getting fresh air, not exercising. Um, and that brings you on to the sort of mental health of not, not just squash players and sportsmen, but everybody, um, you know, which is a, another passion of mine. And we sport as, a, as an academy sports, uh, a charity called Calm, Campaign Against Living Miserably. And that's something I'm very passionate about as well. Um, and, you know, I'm very aware that there's a lot of people that just can't get away. They haven't got in, in big houses or haven't got gardens, things that are stuck inside. Yeah. Um, and it's been tragic, really, that first three months. I mean, we luckily, the weather was nice, but we're not all the privilege to have a garden and get outside and get exercise. So it's been very, very tough. You know, I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, there's a lot of people a lot worse off. Um, so we just all go to the muck in and just do our best for everybody, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, uh, how, how's the wine cellar? How are they, uh, how are they, are they fairly well stocked at the moment? What are you, what are you doing? Very well stocked. Um, yeah, as you know, I've got, a, I've always got, again, I've got a conveyor belt of wine arriving on, on a weekly basis. I mean, I've just ordered the 12 bottles today actually for Birmingham, which we bought, brought down here. Um, I've got an old friend of yours, Ollie Fincher, yeah. um, popping in for a business meeting on Wednesday. And I use that in the, in the loosest possible term, um, because we had a few business meetings with Ollie Fincher, didn't we? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. which we, they, they certainly started off as business meetings and they ended up with us sort of being dragged home we didn't, uh, about 12 didn't, hours later. Yeah, we didn't always uh, didn't wake up the next day and not, not sure what we'd achieved apart from uh, we'd achieve we'd achieve nothing was what we achieved. The square root of F4 forged some good good friendships there, though. So, so it was, certainly wasn't time, yeah. Or we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe well, you, spent, you, you spent a large proportion of your sponsorship money on those meals, of course. <laughs> Which well, wasn't really the idea. Holly certainly enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, tried to plan them in yeah. as, as far away from the yeah. event as possible. But going back to my wines, obviously, I love, you know, I love my wines, and it's a passion of mine, just drinking great wines and stuff. And it's something that you can travel around. I've done a few wine tasting. Went to Italy last year. We went to Bordeaux the year before. Did wine tasting there. We went to Florence last year. As I say, it was just beautiful. You know, going to different places, having to try on different cultures and different wines and different foods. Um, it's something I encourage, as you know, I encourage all my players to do. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm not sure that's the right thing. I'd say um, the only the only time the only time most of uh, most of us guys have tried nice wine is is it yours with you? So. Uh... Yeah, yeah, well, I always, I always took, took you guys out for nice lunch and things. And, you know, I think it's important to look after the players and stuff and show you these sort of things because that's one of the pleasures in life. And a lot of a lot of squash players and just people generally just don't enjoy these things. And if you don't enjoy the, these sort of good things, you know, what's the point of it all? Um, it's, you know, the squash side is absolutely fantastic and getting these great wins, but there's got to be some enjoyment. And I think if you talk to a lot of players, especially the really, really good ones, they'll look back and actually didn't enjoy it enough. Um, yeah. And that's one thing I can say looking back at my career, I bloody enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, you know, there was plenty of downs, but there's a lot of ups. But I, I definitely enjoyed it. You know, if you talk, I, obviously, I'm great friends with Rod Martin and something like that, as you know, and a few of the other guys. And they probably would admit they probably didn't enjoy things as much as they probably should have done in some ways. Um, and it's probably a bit of a regret. Yeah, I feel like I'm definitely more on, more on your side. I, uh, yeah, so love love playing, love travelling, and uh, yeah, 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 made the most of. Uh, have you got Have you got any regrets from your career, Jamie? Um, probably not Squash having any, uh, probably looking back, I think the first like five years after I finished university from when I was 21 or two or whatever, when I left, I, I, looking back now, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, you know, and I was surrounded by some quite good players, but 
the, the quality of the training and uh, the really well. I was in Birmingham well before you had like got back into squash. Um, and you know, it just there wasn't enough quality there. There wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't really know what. I mean, I, I knew Jonathan Kemp, who was obviously a good player in the top thirty in yeah, the world at the time. But it, uh, yeah, it just wasn't consistent enough training, I guess, at, the, at a high enough intensity and quality. And also, I didn't probably didn't play the right style of game for me personally. I wasn't fit enough. So you know, put those things together yeah. and <laughs> you're asking for a bit. Yeah, you're not going to maximise, are you? But yeah, I think when once we yeah. uh, once we got. Once I started working a year and got you know more that that intense intense environment and comp- really competitive environment and, and you know thinking more about the game about playing to your strengths and uh, you know sort of see yeah. so much now with people I'm coaching just trying to get that across really that you know people just don't really understand how to play and you know also how to play for how to play themselves and what's what sort of style of game they should be trying to trying to put into practice and you know the basic skills really the ball control stuff like that's just not good enough. Basically. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because obviously I remember all the players when they come to me, what their rankings are and things like that. And, you know, I mean, I, I remember clearly, I think you were 95 in the world when you came to me, weren't you? Um, and you ended up getting to 50, which, you know, at 28 years old was quite an achievement, I thought, really. Um, you know, as you say, it's a shame you didn't get come earlier, but, you know, you, that's just one of those things. And it's it's difficult, isn't it? Everyone can look back and say, I wish I'd done that. I mean, I was probably the opposite in my career because I was spoilt early on, uh, yeah. obviously working with someone like Jonah. Um, and I probably took that a bit for granted. So I've got regrets later on in my career, really. Um, so I did it the other way around from you. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I sort of, you know, really felt I wasted my career to a certain extent because obviously I had a lot of ability um, and should have done, even though I got to 20, I would have that down as a failure, 20 or 19, where I was just about top 20. Yeah. I beat most players up to number eight in the world, uh, seven in the world or something like that. Um, but I would definitely have my career down as a pretty dismal failure. What was the, so what was the, how did you get in squash to- Initially, then, when you as a junior, you were you sort of stumbled across it at the local club, or apparently? well, I had an unusual sort of thing. I played a very small two-court facility um, called Nolan Dorridge. Um, my parents both played. My dad was shocking. My mum was actually very good, a lot of ability, um, but just a you know a standard sort of player. She was number one at the club, um, and they used to drop me down there. I used to go down holidays, play tennis and squash, and I didn't really play anybody at all. I was the best player in the club up to sort of fourteen, I think, fifteen. I think I was number one. I was number one in Warwickshire for a while, but didn't really play that much. Um, I played chess more seriously probably for a while. Um, yeah. I was a decent sort of chess player. Played that first, and then at fifteen, I had a phone call from West Warwick, the chairman there. I was sort of you know doing pretty well, um, but all I did was practice on my own. To be honest, Jay, That's, I used to practice on my own every day. Um, sometimes twice a day, I used to run and stuff, and I was very very keen. Um, hadn't got me to play at all. And then I had the phone call, and they said, "Look, come join West Warwick." Jonah Barrington's there, you know. Um, so I think I was about 15, 16. And I just used to watch every session for above. I used to love watching, always love watching and copying and love watching the old players and things, um, which is something a lot of people don't do now. Not as much as they should do anyway. And there's sports, there's all these videos and footage that you can watch. And there's so many different styles and techniques. And obviously, you can copy your favorite player. But I just watched Jonah for hours and hours and hours, do a session with Bomber, play matches, play games. And and then I think when he was about 16, I think he had an injury or something. And uh, he was his Achilles actually, and so he's coming back. And oh, at that stage, I was good enough to go on with him, play some length games, some conditions, that sort of thing. And it's just started from there. And we um, we just sort of started playing each other on a regular basis. And I improved enormously, really. I was very lucky because I think I lost first round of the British in the 16 Open. And a couple of years later, I, I sort of uh, I beat James in the semis of the British in the 19 Open and got the final uh, within yeah. a couple of years, really. But that was just from playing Jonah on a regular basis. 
being around good players, watching good players, and you know, something like that, isn't it? You're gonna pick up. Yeah, look, it was it was incredible. But again, as a young man, and I'm sure players around me and other players, you don't quite realise what you've got until probably 20 years later, or maybe 10 years later, when you actually finish that experience. Um, and I was with the greatest squash player I've ever been, um, one of the great sort of characters, the most charismatic squash player by a million miles. Um, you know, and you talk about Mr. Squash, but he sort of transcended Squash Jonah. Um, he just had this sort of charisma that wherever he went, there was just people just, you know, just wanted to talk to him and listen to him. And he could just sort of, he'd have the audience eating out of the palm of his hand. You know, so there's many a time we'd go, we'd play somewhere, what we might have an exhibition or something, and he, we'd be there till one o'clock to all the cleaner, you know. Um, it was just extraordinary. And the clinics would go on for hours, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, I mean, I was, I actually started off because he used to help me out, but I was his gardener at uh, 16. So give me a bit of cash. And then I got sacked from that because one day I, I pitched it up and I cut all his rose heads off um, in the winter, obviously. Um, I thought they were weeds and maddening come out when it And I cut all his bloody roses off. I used to um, obviously babysit Joey when he was four years old and stuff, but I must have been the worst babysitter in the world, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah. no wonder Joey's turned out like he has. All this <laughs> sort of character and, and all this sort of, yeah, it, it explains a lot. Um, the poor lad, he was obviously mentally abused by me from four, the age of four to 10. Yeah. Um, which you can probably tell now it's commentary yeah. you're, you're probably gambling and, and betting and stuff at that age I'd imagine yeah I was I was a loose cannon to be honest Jamie I mean I don't talk about these sort of things very often and, you know there's a lot of stories that are exaggerated but I was a loose cannon um, I remember I used to sleep at the club quite a bit I was thrown out home several times I remember sleeping in the sauna because that was the only place <laughs> you could hide so I, I must have I, I slept for weeks in the sauna and I can tell you they're not comfortable they're not a nice bed it's not like a nice little comfy double bed to let spend. You see the players now, they all these sort of things. And I was sleeping in the sauna. I remember hiding behind curtains when the cleaners came in. It wasn't meant to be there. Um, oh, I remember I woke up on a barge one morning um, in Stratford upon Avon. Don't know how I got there. Um, I remember I playing Joe, a, Joe. Few, uh, a few drinks involved in this one. Well, that one actually was because I remember being woken up. There was there was a couple of girls around me. There was me, and I was on a barge in Stratford, um, and I was eighteen, and I was playing Joan at nine o'clock, and I woke up at six. Um, and I had to hitch, I hitched the lift to uh, West Warwick from Stratford. Um, and I, God knows, I mean, Joe didn't say too much, but he gave me good stuffing, obviously. And he could see he wasn't happy. In fact, he was fuming. Um, and I wasn't at my best and he gave me a proper bollocking. And there were several instances like that. But but if it hadn't been for Squash and Joe, no, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I do now. And I really don't know what I've done because uh, I was difficult. You know, I admit that myself. I was very difficult. I had several different personalities and things and I had a lot of disciplinary issues. Um, all sorts of things going on. I guess something about squash, isn't there? Just once you get into it, once you get that with that bug, the squash bug that you're, uh, yeah, I guess it doesn't matter who you are, but you're uh, it's really a dip, such a Yeah, I loved it. Um, but I also had this unfortunate ability to attract chaos wherever I went. Um, and as you know, I still attract chaos now. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. And obviously, I blame other people, but ultimately, I seem to attract chaos. And uh, you have to wonder if I'm the centre of the chaos at times. I, I'd um, say, yeah, in my experience, you are, yeah, you are the uh, common denominator there. <laughs> yeah, which is, I'm not proud of that at all sometimes. And obviously, we have great amusement at times. But obviously, I'm, I, I can sometimes go to that edge. Uh, and, you know, I can go over the edge sometimes, very occasionally. You know, obviously, that thing where, you know, obviously, that famous story where I put my foot to the door and, this sort of things. I mean, most of the time I can sort of um, pull back and, and not go over the precipice. There's been a few times I haven't pulled back and that actually ended up... Red mist descends. And, uh... Well, when I, when I haven't pulled this three or four times, I haven't pulled back and that's ended up with girls being pregnant four times. Um, <laughs> so that's obviously dangerous. But um, most of the times I've managed to pull back quite safely. Um, 
but I mean, there has been the odd time I say the foot through the door incident when I obviously I was told I'd never play squash again when I was 18. That was after that British Open final. Just um, the world yeah. isn't it? That was, that was, again, a story has been very exaggerated. I played a guy called Ralph Herod, who's the club pro um, in the West Warwick's handicap final. Um, and I was on minus 15, he was on plus five. And uh, it, was, it was a best of three. Um, it was packed and I played him and I lost 2-1 to him and I was absolutely fuming. And in, in those days, we had these double doors at West Warwick's and they had they were that thick, toughened glass with a wire mesh in it. And I just kicked the door open, probably a little too hard. And my foot went straight through it and the, the shoe went through it and it was like that sort of cheese, uh, that cheese wire. And it went straight through my shoe. Um, I, I couldn't really feel much because obviously it just sliced through and it sliced through my big toe. Big toe was hanging off and just blood gushing up. Um, people heard the noise of all the glass and people come running down and straight to hospital. Um, I was told by the surgeon that I'd never play squash again. Um, it damaged my foot so badly. I was playing the World Juniors. Was, this was um, January. I was playing the World Juniors April. Um, I was meant to play Green of the Week after that, after the foot. Jonah didn't speak to me for six weeks. Um, so I, I was in a pretty bad way. I was in plaster then. Um, then I started doing some Bomber Harris sessions in, with the plaster which were pretty brutal because I couldn't hit a ball or anything, obviously. Um, couldn't move. Um, and I remember going back to my plaster taken off. And I'd been around to Jonas, he had a gym at his house, and there was just a pedal groove in my plaster underneath it um, <laughs> where he got me bloody cycling. So there's this great big bloody pedal imprint in the plaster. And they said, what the hell have you been doing? You know, and I've been pedaling like crazy and doing sit-ups and things and all the rest of the medicine ball with Bomber. But I actually managed to play the World Genius, which was a miracle. Um, wow. But I've never, uh, you know, what I've, I never talked about this, but I never really fully recovered from that because I, could, I've, I can't lift my big toe now. So I, I was never as a squash player able to lift my foot properly. Um, so I actually did pretty well considering I was, you know, sometimes I was hopping around on one leg. I wish I could have done so my foot work. Yeah, well, I, had, I, I, I still can't lift my big toe. I've still got a scar there now and it cut through the tendons and I can't lift my big toe. So when you're dragging one foot around, That's it's not ideal, is it? When you... been, I've having, having been on court with you many a time, yeah, you're, uh, you're always pretty light on your feet, I thought. <laughs> yeah, fight for a big man, you mean? <laughs> so yeah, so it was a, it was a, it was an interesting time. My sort of junior career and obviously my senior career was short um, because I was sort of I was ambitious and I played squash to be the world number one. I'll be very honest about that. Um, most people probably don't say that. I, but I mean, when I was seventeen, eighteen, I thought I had a chance of being world number one. Um, I probably didn't have a dip there for various reasons. I didn't have the mental discipline. Yes, other, by the time other, you, know, the, you know the people around you like. David Lloyd, Rod Martin, those guys, you know, they did they run it to the very top of the game, didn't they? Well, I was, I was you know, I was, I was seed number three in the juniors. I'm beating Janshire. I was, I remember beating, I think I beat Arlesy or someone like that. Uh, I was beating all those guys at times. Um, I lost to Rod 3 2 in the British 23 Open and the semis. Um, I was beating good players regularly. I was giving some people some real batterings. Um, and really, I just didn't, they just carried on pushing. Whereas I got to that sort of level and I rested my laurels a little bit, if I'm being honest. Um, and I didn't have that sort of discipline that they had. And there's no excuses, you know, ultimately I wasn't good enough. I mean, I had the ability to do a lot better, but I didn't have the physical ability and the, the discipline to sort of put those sessions in. And I also had other things I wanted to do. I enjoyed my life, as you know. A yeah. um, bit like yourself, I had some other things I quite enjoyed. Um, and to be the best, as you know, you've got to be 100% squash. I've got every respect for those guys, you know, the Nick Matthews, the, the Paul Coles, you know, these guys, Joel Makin, who I coached, obviously, uh, just an unbelievable attitude, you know, when he first came to that huge desire but but you know someone like Joel and Nick to a certain extent they were, that's all they cared about you know they, they didn't care about anything other than squash and that was their whole aim um, and everything else didn't matter what got in the way they just sort of just kick it out of the way and um, didn't matter who they sort of hurt whatever they just go through it through a brick wall for squash yeah. I admire that in many ways but it's not it's not a great personality trait uh, if you want to get on in life in other ways but for squash you sort of need that you need to be a bit of a prick sometimes 
Um, that's not necessarily all the case for all the players, but some people they need that. You know, if they haven't got the ability for some of the players, you need to have that attitude. Um, and I, I certainly didn't have that. I could be I could be quite nasty at times and quite vicious. Um, but I sort of yeah, I didn't have that that they had. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of I finished playing at 26 for the last three years. Probably sort of wasted a little bit really. Um, so I was drifting along, playing leagues. You know, just playing squash for money. I felt. And I was fortunate that I had a sort of reasonable brain that I could do something else, you know. And then obviously I went back to university. Well, I guess, you know, and you're looking at the players that you have worked with and uh, had the most success with, you know, those people like Paul, Joel, uh, Nella, SJ, you know, they're, they've, they're benefiting from uh, from that side of your, you know, side of your personality and, and play. You know, they, they've got, like you said, they've got that unbelievable work ethic, but, you know, it's put, sort of put in the... They uh, have, I mean... And obviously one of the things, you know, because I've been there myself and to a certain extent been very good, but not, you know, the best, I know what's needed. So I do know what's needed. I also know what I missed and I know I should have been better. So I knew what the bit of me that was missing to make me sort of compete with those guys. And I recognise them. And also I can bring to the table that a lot of people can't because I've got things that they can't do. Um, and obviously you mentioned five players there, but I mean, you know, you, there's, there's lots of people, you know, obviously like yourself. And to me, it's just as much an achievement getting someone like Nathan Lake, from, I think he's 130 and he came to me to... to I think he's 45 now, teaching him how to play. I mean, obviously, some of the young kids I now get obviously have a lot of ability and they're going to be good players anyway, with or without me. Um, maybe I might get in there quicker and teach them some things they're not going to hear from many other places. Um, but I mean, I get just as so much pleasure from, you know, getting you to 95 to 50 and Nathan up to 50, around about that sort of level and playing some great squash. And, you know, someone like Nathan's a great example because he wasn't really enjoying squash when he came to me. And he just started to, you know, I wanted him to enjoy it. And that's one thing I, want all my players to do is enjoy actually playing the sport because we're very, very fortunate playing sport for a living. And as you know, you're a long time retired and, you know, you'll look back in 10 years and you'll realise how much you actually love playing. And I retired at 26, which is probably too early looking looking back on it. But I mean, it's it's just a fantastic way to earn a living playing sports, something you love and are passionate about it. And a lot of players get blasé and don't really make the most of that at the time, I don't think. So it's absolutely critical. I mean, we talked about it earlier, but to, to really thoroughly enjoy doing doing this for a living. Because a lot of people out there would love to play sport for a living and can't. They haven't got the ability or or the desire or the or the you know the work ethic, whatever reason. To get caught up in the sort of day to day and over I don't know, maybe over analysing little things or you know, have a bad session, you like that. They like get to you, but yeah, like so if you can look look take the big, you know, the bigger picture and uh and yes. Yeah, there's got to be a better way to look at it than uh, yeah than focusing on the negative on a bad session or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say you should. You, you know, I always try and get my players to get something out of every session. You know, I think there's always something to learn if you're playing badly. You can learn. You know, how to how to win when you're playing badly. There's always something we can work on. Um, you know, that mental side is very important. You know, the great players they win when they're playing badly or when they're playing well. You know, I mean, you're not saying that Jang can't do the flu a couple of times in those 555 matches on beaten run. Um, he must have had a couple of matches where he felt terrible and he no one knew and he still won. So we all have days and times when we feel terrible. You know, I go into my office sometimes and I think well, I'm going to lose today. And, you know, and sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I mean, there's always that fighting spirit to try and get something out of it. You know, I mean, I've had days where I've been, you know, I mean, one day I lost 65 grand in a day uh, punting. And obviously that's a horrific amount of money to lose. But the next day you got your head up, you come back and I, I ended up that month winning, you know. Um, and that's that sort of fighting spirit. That you have to have, and you have to uh, start a few, again. A few questions from listeners, and that was well. I don't know if that's the biggest, but yeah, that was one of uh, one of the questions that came in was uh, what's the biggest biggest wins and losses on the punting uh, 
punting front? Yeah, well, my, my worst day, obviously. I mean, I've had some horrific days on markets and things uh, where the market's turned against you, and that's probably been worst. I've had some pretty bad days in that. But, I mean, yeah, 65,000 is my worst uh, punting day. I've had some big losses on horses. Um, I've had 40,000, 50,000 on a horse. Um, they've gone down. Um, but, I, but do you know what? I actually don't mind that at all. I mean, if it's a good bet and the price is right and everything else, uh, I never mind that at all. It's a, To me, it's... Um, you know, you don't see the money. It's just a transaction. It's a financial transaction. I'm getting value, and over a period of time, I always win. I mean, I haven't lost, I haven't lost for I don't know, 18 years. So, you know, so I, I know that you know, the next day, I'm always every day I start the day, I'm on to win. Um, so that gives you a bit of confidence. Um, and so even those bad days, and I need a, I need a lot of bad luck to lose. To be quite frank, um, it's difficult for me to lose on a regular basis because I need some crazy sort of bad luck, you know, fallers or whatever else it might be. Um, the biggest bet I've had on something, I don't know. Um, I've had a few decent bets on horses, I guess. But um, boxing, I've had a few sort of 50, 60 grand on boxing matches. Yeah. I haven't, I don't think I've ever lost a big bet on sport, ever. I think I've just about won every single big bet I've ever done. Considering uh, my, your nickname for me was the, the curse when I used to come around and sit next to you uh, and watch you punt. But thankfully, thankfully, I wasn't around on any of those big days, didn't I? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've, I've given most of the players a few wins and stuff. And it's, uh, I, I always think with the gambling side of things, it's really good sometimes for people to sit next to me and see what I'm doing. Um, and actually, you can learn a lot from that. There's a, there's a lot of what I do that's really relative to squash. Um, yeah. You know, looking at odds, looking at fluctuations, looking at probability of, of an eventuality happening. Because that's very much like squash. You know, what's the eventuality of a, an opponent hitting a certain shot? What's the probability of you hitting a tin from that position? You know, there's, I mean, our, our whole lives are probability of something happening. There's eventuality and probability of every single thing we do. Um, and I apply a lot of that to my squash coaching, to my um, the way I played squash, um, patterns of play, um, certain patterns and things like that. So I find it very interesting. And again, it's obviously the analytical side of me coming out. And so when players do sort of things, I try and explain what I'm doing a little bit, as you know, um, why I'm doing it, what I think is going to happen. And one of the great things in sport, and you watch good sports, is, is knowing in advance what's going to happen. Um, and that's a skill, it's that sort of sixth sense. And that's what I do with something like with racing or us. It's working out what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, and then actually putting that into, into practice and what the actual price of that eventually happening is. And if you can do that, you're halfway there. You really are because you've got a big advantage over your opponent. So that's using your brain. You know, some people will never do that, but you can sort of you can teach it to a certain extent. And then, of course, there's the odd one that's completely natural. Um, you know, there's freaks, you know, it's like your Jan Chikans and people who are just freakishly natural and have everything aspect. Um, and he, he could work everything out. It's almost like he knew the ball was going every single time. But without knowing that, he'd have done a lot of things I do, but he just wouldn't have realised he did it. It would just be natural. Whereas some would have to think about it more than others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I certainly don't understand it from a betting point of view, but I, de I definitely find myself trying to put that across to uh, some, of the, some of the better players that I'm coaching, the juniors that I'm coaching, but trying to think about that. You know, without the, you realising, Jay, you are doing that. I mean, you are doing that when you say to a player, hit the ball higher or use some height or defend under pressure. Um, you are actually, you know, using that really without actually sort of saying it, you know, using that probability because there's no point attacking when you're under pressure and trying to play a winning shot when you the ball's behind you. And, you know, and that's probability. It's the same thing, really, um, without actually just looking at it a slightly different way. And that was definitely, yeah, like I say, when, when we first started working together, that was, that was one of the big reasons that, that my squash improved, just because I hadn't really thought, and I never had anyone to talk to me about squash in those terms really before, so... 
It was, yeah. It was, it was also, I mean, you're an, you're, an interesting, you're an interesting case because you were very skillful. You had a good technique, so I didn't have to do much with technically with you. There's a few little things. But I mean, really, that you, you thought being skillful was hit the ball to the front of the court and you got the sort of court back to front a little bit. And actually, once you understood that, you could be very hit, skillful hit the ball to the back of the court. Um, and that's something people don't realise. You know, some of these players are perceived as being a bit negative. There's a, a huge skill hitting a perfect length, you know, glued to the wall. You know, when people look at Nick Matthew, visually, he wouldn't have as much talent as some of the people he played. Um, but I mean, there's an incredible skill hitting that ball tight down a sidewall um, and using height with, with skill and variety and mix the pace, all these different skills and varieties at the back of the court, as well as the front of the court. Um, there's a massive skill level. So it's making people understand that and actually yeah. enjoy playing like that as well and realising the skill to that. I mean, there's no nothing more satisfying than seeing a ball dying, running away from a person with a perfect weight. Someone like Diego does that brilliantly. Uh, Marvin Chabaggi, there's a lot of players that are doing it at the moment. Um, just have that great weight to shot and that subtlety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, that's huge. That's huge. You know, all of, in my coaching these days, that's, that's what I'm really trying to get across to, uh, especially in junior squash. Like you, you know, can imagine what it's like. But uh, if you can get someone who, who can, you know, understand that and see the value in it, then it's uh, yeah, it's, gonna, it's certainly going to help them a lot, isn't it? You have to open people's minds. You know, it's, it's, it's again, it's about making them enjoy it helping them enjoy it. And the more you know about something, it's like any sport, you know, the more, if I explain horse racing to somebody or, or another sport, uh, the more you know about something, the more you, you enjoy it. It's like anything, you, you learn about art or anything, you know, the more you get to know about something, you start to actually understand it better and you you, you enjoy it. Yeah, so certainly with the wine as well, yeah. No, no, no exactly the same, you know. It doesn't matter what you do, you know, the more you understand, um, the, the more you're going to enjoy it. Um, and squash is exactly the same. Um, and it does frustrate me sometimes um, with juniors and things because there's so much out information out there um, and there's almost too much information. And so there's sports and they just end up just, they want to be told everything. And a lot of the time, I think people, more people should be actually learning from themselves. And I mean, I learned to play myself, really, just practicing on my own. I learned different things, different cuts. I used to practice things. I used to, I used to practice hitting a bat or boast and trying to run forward and try and volley it um, myself. You know, all these sort of different things. I used to rally my, my own. Um, I used to do lots of reverse angles and three wall nick boasts. And obviously, you know, I had a reasonable sort of boast, but that was just from thousands of hours of practice on my own. Yeah. Um, and these days, kids just don't do enough of it. There's not that desire to improve and being, learn. Certainly, being over here in the States, you see that that's times times 10 with anything I've experienced in England because, you know, money's not, money's not an object here for. Uh, for the parents, so you know, kids are if you, if they you tell them that they need to have, you know fifteen sessions a week, they'll come to fifteen sessions a week. But you know, a lot of the time they can't. Yeah. They're not not prepared. To, they're not doing enough enough solo practice and then really like thinking for yeah. themselves. They expect the coach to be able to yeah. like solve any problem for them, which isn't you know when you're on court, so it's you you you're there and you know, in the rally you got to make the right decision and uh, yeah, I think that yeah. is, that's a huge thing that's missing really from. Like you say, there's too much, too, almost too much information, too much coaching out there that it can sort of paralysis by analysis type. When I when I go to things like the British Junior Open and stuff, uh, my son played a little bit, um, and uh, I didn't used to watch him play at all apart from a couple of tournaments a year. And did be so because I, I always realised that he'd learn a lot more losing than he would from winning. And if he didn't learn from losing, he wasn't any good anyway. So you know you've got to learn from that process. And also, there's no point in me telling him what to do because he needs to learn what to do himself. Um, but when I go to those events, I just see every single player as a coach virtually, or someone talking between games. And as I started going back to the 19 Open, I played. Um, and the night before I played David Law in the final, I stayed at someone's house. There was there was three of us sharing there, um, me and a couple of mates I brought down. And we had to spin for the bed. So I, I lost the spin. I, I slept on the floor. So I played Lloyd in the final and I slept on the floor. And I wasn't the best sleep, obviously. 
no coaching, nothing. So that was it. I mean, I didn't have one bit of advice the whole match. I think Jonah came down to watch me play Jancha, actually. He came down to watch me play Jancha. But apart from that, I was on my own. I got the train down on my own. Um, my parents didn't come down. I got a train there. I stayed at someone's house I didn't know. Um, and that was it. So I had to work out everything myself. Um, I remember, you know, when the first British Open I played, I played qualifying. It was in Brighton. Um, and I, my, before my first round, I stayed in a cafe, an all-night 24-hour cafe. I got there late. I uh, got the National Express from Digworth, which you've probably been on a few times, Jay. Um, got to Brighton and um, uh, ended up staying in an all-night cafe. Then I went down. I was, I was at the club the next morning in the porch at six and the cleaners got there. And then I played a match. I remember winning my first round. But that was it. It was just, you got on with it. Um, so kids are definitely a bit sport now. And that hasn't helped. And you can see that when you coach them. And when you, they play, because that's when it gets to, you know, six or one or fifth, they don't know what to do and they don't know how to fight and they, they've forgotten how to win and actually work it out themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, what uh, it always fascinates me looking back to sort of the, uh, and talking to people who, who were around and playing during the sort of peak peak of squash in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, there's like you said, you said about yourself getting bad press and whatever, but, you know, squash back then, it was, it did. It attracted like national press, didn't it? And there was it was uh, there was thousands, well, a lot more courts, thousands of people watching some of the big matches and tournaments and the British Open and stuff like that. Well, it was very different. I mean, we can also look at rose tinted glass about the old days, and obviously there's problems back then. Um, I mean, obviously there wasn't any funding back then, so that made it more difficult for players. You had to earn a living, and there was no funding at all, which in some ways wasn't a bad thing um, because if you didn't win, you didn't get any money and you couldn't play. It was as simple as that. Um, but obviously, we're in an era where there's, we're very privileged because obviously it was an incredibly strong period of squash. There was two and a half million people playing squash twice a week in the UK. I think we're down to 250,000 now. It's probably about bloody 25 at the moment. But I mean, it's um, obviously it was crazy. So there was big crowds, there's TV, there's a lot of press. There was national press for PSL and things. Um, we hadn't got the TV, which is, is amazing. I love watching the squash on TV. I think it's, and the, the TV was terrible in our day. It looked slow. It was just awful. You know, everything was bad about it, really. It just looked it looked rubbish. Um, whereas now it's just an amazing product, and they do a great job with it. They film it really well. Everything about it's it's, it's fantastic. Um, but we were very privileged because obviously you had so many more people playing the sport. So I remember West Warwick where we had a waiting list, um, two or three waiting list, and we had 120 members per court. Um, and you know some clubs you had to go to the committee to get in, and all this sort of stuff, which is obviously, you know, we're we're desperate to get members now. Um, so we were very lucky really um, playing squash in that era because um, it was probably the best of it but look I mean before this terrible COVID thing came along um, it was looking pretty good I think the clubs were seemed to be doing pretty well in the UK um, Certainly Birmingham you know, we uh, Birmingham well West Midlands area is, is uh, stronger Birmingham was great I mean we've got a lot of good coaches around the area people doing a lot of job I mean you know, it is encouraging sometimes. I mean, I did an England squash conference uh, a couple of weeks ago on a Zoom thing, and I think there's about 12 or 15 coaches there, and I was talking about what I do and some technique things. And and it was great to see these sort of young people who were sort of very passionate. And I didn't know any of them, really. I knew a couple of them, um, but I didn't know a lot of them. And so there's people out there still pushing and promoting the sport. You know, I don't know, what, I don't know how good the coaching standard is, but I'm not worried about that because if you can get numbers there, you know, if I can get 100 kids to West Royce, I can guarantee I can make 10 of them good at least. And squashes in any sports and numbers game. If we get the numbers, the standard goes up. It's as simple as that. And one of the great things in my day was that the best kids in the school would play squash. Now it doesn't happen. You know, so the best runner, the best footballer, they might choose to play squash. You know, now, unless you're uh, the best players, along someone like Sam Todd, his dad's got a squash club. And that's not a coincidence. It just happens that they're sort of involved in squash already. And uh, if his dad didn't have a squash club, he wouldn't have played squash. But there's a, there are hundreds of Sam Todd's in the UK 
who just don't play squash, hundreds of them. And, you know, the Del Harris is these people. I mean, someone like Del Harris, Tony Hans, Chris Walker, all came from one club called Ardley Hall, which isn't there now. You know, if my day that wasn't there, those guys never existed. So that would have immediately got rid of 30% of our top players, you know? Um, so, and we're losing clubs all the time. So obviously you're very lucky in America because you're gaining courts and gaining players, which is amazing. But it's probably the only place in the world that is, is in that situation, isn't it, Jay? It is, yeah. It's, I mean, it's refreshing to be be here, be somewhere where it's so popular, and you know, the demands demands huge. The coaching demand is, as I say, almost like it's almost overkill in in some respects. But it's certainly, uh, yeah, yeah. This like you are getting good athletes playing playing squash. Um, you know, they're good at other yeah. sports as well, and they and they play. They most of them tend to play quite a few different sports throughout the year, and uh, you know, they got some good good sort of transferable skills from that. So. It's, uh, Hopefully, it's a matter of time before we get some of these guys, you know, becoming coming through because we need some good American male players. Obviously, there's some great female players, you know. Yeah, know. Whether there's that desire um, to take it further, a lot, you know, it's all about getting into there. Isn't, but but if somebody gets good enough as a junior and they're just exceptional, um, they will take it further because they're they're better designed and they won't be able to get that good as a junior unless they do have that passion design in the first place. Anyway, um, at the moment they're not that good, um, but if someone becomes exceptional, they will they'll get exceptional by having that passion design. And that is also going back to the UK is one of our problems that people like yourself um, and we've had a real sort of you know brain drain of people going to the States and losing a lot of our best coaches. Um, yeah. So I'm very pleased that people like Nick Matthew, you know, Laura Massaro, they're actually staying in the UK, you know, England squash are sort of um, looking after them a little bit and they're employed these so many days. But we need these sort of guys, these top players to stay in the UK. I mean, people like me are washed up and finished really. I'm 55 years old. And I haven't got long left for I can jump in the box and have a good rest. Um, you know, so, and there's, you know, I'm a dinosaur. Malcolm Wilstrop, I don't know what Malcolm is, but I mean, he's another coughing dodger, isn't he? I mean, he can't have long left either. Um, you know, and I love Malcolm. He's a great bloke and he, it's amazing he's still going. I can't see myself doing what he does at his age. Um, and he's had a conveyor belt of players, but, you know, when he disappears and myself and a few other of us, of us there's not been much left. Um, yeah, you know, hopefully we can. Down to us, the likes of people who've, who've worked, like Billy, you know, yourself with, uh, with Jonah, but, you know, people who've worked with you to sort of carry that on, isn't it? And uh... Yeah, well, that's the thing. You want to pass the baton on. I mean, hopefully, you know, the players of mine that have carried on coaching, they will sort of pass the message on what I've done. I'd like to think I've done a reasonable job with a few people. Um, but obviously, we've got to look elsewhere. You know, there's, there are good coaches in the UK. Um, just hope they stay in the UK and it's just getting those numbers back in. And, you know, if, if, if Nick and Laura and these other England coaches get the numbers in, I'm sure they'll do a good job and we will start producing players again. Um, my, my fear is obviously that we lose courts, we lose numbers and we're just not attracting the numbers of kids to play squash and uh, sports. And there's other things out and people at the moment have got out of the habit of playing squash. They're playing outdoor sports, tennis and golf and things. And we are losing kids and there's no tournaments. Um, it's, it's hard to attract people back. Um, so I think we need to look at what we're doing and how we're going to get people back into sports and make it attractive to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how? What was the? Uh, how did you get into betting then? In terms of uh, as a full-time profession, betting. I was always. Um, I, it was always when I had a bit of a knack at. I was always quite good at it. Um, I bet a bit at university uh, when I yeah, studied. I I, 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 Taking I money off the guys on tour and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, look, I, I, I was, as I say, I mean, I was, I was very lucky because I had a very analytical brain. So I, was a, I, was, I wouldn't say I was a good chess player, but I was, um, I was a decent chess player, you know, sort of bottom county standard. Um, I came third in the Nationals once, um, which is probably my pinnacle. Um, so I was good at chess. Um, 
Um, but I was never going to be a sort of chess player as, as much as a squash player. Um, so that helped because I could always sort of think things, work things out. And that's obviously part of the process of gambling. Um, and I realised I could make a bit of money. I was, I was good at sports betting. And I could always sort of work out what was going to happen a little bit. And I could work, I could relate that to knots. Um, and so when I went to university, I, I, I basically supplemented my England income with gambling. Um, and then I met a few people, um, a, a good friend of mine called Rob Wright, who was the racing correspondent at the Times. Um, uh, although he was a race correspondent at the Times, he sort of, he bet pretty seriously as well. He taught me about speed figures and various other aspects, which I didn't know about racing, <coughs> which I used, um, became quite passionate about it. And it just, it just sort of went from there, really. I used to keep books um, and I wrote down every single bet. Um, most of my bets are on racing because there's a lot more variables there. So it's harder to work out for most people. So you actually get better value. Uh, football, for example, there's only three results and you won't get 10 to one man you at home. Whereas a horse, you can back a horse at 10 to one you think might win. Um, and then vice versa, you can oppose a horse at evens that you think has got no chance for various reasons, whether it be the ground or the horse in the race and run the seat, it's going to go slow or it's going to get taken on the lead. There's, there's so many variables that you can work out. So, um, I did that and I, I enjoyed that. And then obviously, as you know, I, was, I had an optician, so I had my own practice and I worked for a period, but it got to the stage where I was making as much from gambling in a month as I was as an optician as a year. Yeah. So at that point, I thought, well, you know, I really should be doing this full time. And it's probably the next best thing to playing professional sport, really, playing squash, because so you're still doing it. It's competitive. Well, yeah, I never got a buzz because I never really, I, I, a bit like squash, I didn't like losing, but I never particularly enjoyed winning. It was just a transaction to me. Um, I liked, I quite like being right because you were proven right, you know, when you won on a bet. So it was actually, you got it right. And I like that because you were backed up. Um, it was more about that, really. It wasn't actually, it was never the money to me at all. I've never been bothered about money at all in many ways. I've always spent far too much and I've enjoyed it to, to use it. Um, I've never been bothered about it. Um, but it was more the fact that it was the, it was solving the problem and the puzzle that yeah. I enjoyed. And I didn't like losing. Um, um, so there's that competitive edge, a bit like squash. Any idea where the competitive edge comes up from? Do you see that in your parents? Look, it's an interesting subject, isn't it? Because you've either got it or you haven't to a certain extent. Um, And you see some people who are just incredibly competitive. I mean, I'm very competitive in some ways. It it just depends. I mean, sometimes I'm not competitive and sometimes I very very much am. Um, But they're really some great sports. Obviously, they're incredibly competitive. Um, Although you do see some people who are just so talented that they're not even that competitive and they still look sometimes the best. You know, yeah. you know, you're Ronnie Sullivan's and people like that, um, who are just quite extraordinary, just unique talents. Um, although I'm sure he has a you know, competitive spirit at times, but, but sometimes he doesn't. But yeah, no, it, it didn't come from anybody in particular. My sister was incredibly laid back. She was she was very very talented, probably more talented than me in some ways. She could have been an exceptional squash player. She was a good runner, cross country runner, ran for the county, I think. Um, very good tennis player, um, good at all sports, very good musician, um, very very talented girl. But she had absolutely no competitive spirit whatsoever which didn't drive her. So I always had that thing which sort of drove me a little bit. Um, yeah. And like many sort of sportsmen and people who did well at work, I think it's more the fear of losing that drove me than actually enjoying to winning. Yeah. Were, were you like that, Jay? Or was it, uh, was it more, did you enjoy winning more? Um, I mean, well, well, certainly wouldn't put myself amongst the great sports people, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm that, I'm not an overly competitive person, I wouldn't say, in, in, I don't know, in general life, probably not, not that much, no. It was, de- I'd say, definitely more. You know, the fear of losing was was more the driving factor. Though. Yeah. I definitely yeah, agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I hated losing. I, I mean, when I bet, I get virtually zero enjoyment out of winning. Um, and I've won some big bets. I have won some big bets at times, 
Um, you know, I've I've got zero enjoyment, um, but I've I've actually hated losing, uh, which is a bit I've weird. Been with uh, you, I've had a little. Yeah, I've had a little smile now and again. I won a few quid, or thought, well, that's I've done quite well there, whatever. Or I've, you know, I bought a bank to or something, or whatever it might be. Um, thought well, that's quite nice. But I've I've never really sort of been over the moon about it. Um, whereas you see some people they win and they just absolutely jumping around for joy and they can't sit still, can they? No, like I mean, that. no, I've definitely experienced more of you sort of threatening to jump in, jump into the uh, into the mm. pond outside when you lose. And uh, yeah, you see, yeah, you're definitely more. Uh, <clears throat> more, I mean, more volatile when you, yeah, when you when you lose, and more likely to jump around and like that. Than, uh, yeah, I, I sort of, I, I, I do sometimes take a sort of almost like dark sort of pleasure in losing and doing badly. Um, I don't know what it is, but I sort of I can sort of thrive and sort of see a, a dark sense of human absolute misery around me. So I sort of, I do sometimes quite like that. It's a bit weird, really. Um, and I can remember when I talk to myself quite a bit. You know, I blame other people. I talk to God and things and all sorts of things in the day when things are going badly. Um, I've imagined conversations about six or seven different characters who have like, made up over the years. Um, so I'm I'm glad there's no camera. Um, but yeah, so that's all a bit strange. Yeah, that fly on the wall, fly on the wall for uh, three hours from two till five in the afternoon any, on any given day would be uh, yeah. <laughs> priceless. To well, when I was, I mean, you say two till five in the afternoon, but I mean, you know, going back to when I was doing it seriously, I was I was I was doing it pretty seriously at one point. Um, it was twenty four seven. You know, a very good friend of mine, Anthony, we were up all night uh, watching cricket in India, um, Australia. Uh, we'd be on the phone to each other all night. Um, we were betting on the spreads, buying and selling runs. Um, and it was it was 24-7. You know, he'd phone me with a buddy. There might be a basketball match in Argentina or something, you know, whatever it might be. And you, we'd be up watching it, betting on it, saying all, all the US Open, Australian Open, all night, literally all night. Uh, we had very little sleep sometimes. Um, but that's what it was like. And if you want to be the best... You know, and actually do very well. And gambling is a tough thing to do well in because squash is difficult. How do, how do, how do, would you you know at the time you weren't really involved in squash and whatever? But so how would you like unwind after you know in those after you've, I don't know, you've had a you, week? You just push through. I mean, you know, this is something I'm good at. It's, you you seem like a high intensity, so you know I can go and do a very high intensity morning squash, and I'm straight onto high intensity with racing. So I have a very good focus, good concentration levels. Um, and, you know, I, I can switch off very quickly and I can focus very, very quickly. So I can get very, very angry, you know, it's a bit seven squash. Then a minute later, I can be absolutely focused on the sense and final laughing. Most people can't do that. Um, so that's something, that's an ability I've always had. Um, uh, and the same with the, the gambling, you know, when it was 24-7, it was very intense, but I could just have very short breaks and be fine. Um, but, and I, was, I also sort of thrived on that. I knew, I mean, I say squash is tough, but gambling is way, way tougher. Because you know, there's a lot of people win a lot of squash matches. You know, if you go down the top twenty, lots of people win. Gambling, very few people win, um, and there's millions of people doing it. It's also more competitive because there are millions of people doing it. Um, and I'm a dinosaur because I'm just using my brain. Most people I meet who are professional gamblers are using algorithms, computers, um, programs, and this sort of thing. Um, well, I'm just, I am just looking at a race and, and using my brain um, and winning doing that. But when I go to these sort of different things, I'm invited to, you know, whatever it might be. Women right, or something like that. Involved. Yeah, I'm I'm meeting other people, and the majority of people I meet are now uh, they're just using computers and programs, and they're just obviously they're very very clever people, probably far cleverer than I am. Um, but they're they computer <laughs> programmers, and sometimes they don't know much about the sport involved. Whereas I am just sort of purely using my brain to invest on this. I get no information at all. Um, I'm just doing exactly what I what I do. Yeah. Well, um, right to take it down probably down a notch but um 
don't know if you've listened to any of these. But I've just just opened the uh, a cannonball. Actually, it's the it's, I'm sure you would, yeah the human cannonball. You wouldn't. Uh, you, wouldn't you got a Rod, you got a you got a Rodriguez with you. That's it. Yeah, yeah. A Californian male. It's yeah. I doubt it. Would, it wouldn't be in it your actually, it actually, Yeah, it actually looks a lot smoother than Rodriguez. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. Entering. He's a, he's a bit jerky, isn't he? When he moves around court. Yeah, you don't lining don't quick, but a bit jerky. That looks a lot smoother. I forget who it was. Someone was. Oh, uh, it was Jerry Gibson actually. Was asking. Um, he was talking about Paul Cole and how, you know saying how he loves seeing him diving. I was like, well. That's the last thing, you know, Rob, we're trying to get get that out of his game, if anything. That'll be the first thing he tries to do, really. Yeah, well, Paul rarely dives now, obviously. Um, I mean, he's just a sign of bad movements. You know, you never see Jan Chikar. I never saw Jan Chikar, but he's fallen for once in my life. I mean, the boat's so balanced, it's ridiculous. Um, and you look at the really good movers, um, and they just don't dive, do they? Um, so that was something I did a lot. A lot of work with Paul. I mean, people talk about his forehand. And yes, I have done a bit with his forehand. But really, a lot of the work I've done with, with his movement, getting them in better positions and more balanced. Um, so he's actually got more options to hit the ball from different places. Um, and the same in the backhand. He's got he's got a lot of options now, front and left, which he didn't have before. He used to take it on the wrong foot. Um, he was too far apart. You know, he's he was either too far away or he's too close. He didn't actually understand where he needed to be to hit the ball properly, um, which is amazing because a lot of people actually don't understand exactly where they want to be to hit squash ball. Um, and there's some very, very good players who hit the ball beautifully. But if you actually ask them to explain where they're hitting it or why they're doing it, they don't actually understand that. Yeah. Um, which is unusual. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, also, is it a shot, shot selection thing as well? Is he playing? He playing? He's not exposing himself, and or well, he, he's. I mean, a bit like when you, yourself when you came. He's understanding the game better. I think he's enjoying playing the way he's playing more. So there's definitely more enjoyment. I mean, obviously, look. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I'm one way at all. I've, he's had some good people working with Paul before. I mean, he's, you know, I know Lee Beach had some input into him and talked to him a little bit. He's had Tommy Burden doing a great man of work. He's had, he's had all sorts. He's got a, he's got a great sort of S&C guy. He's had lots of people working with him over the years who've done a fantastic job and football's a bit like Joel. It's, it's well, even better than Joel, really, because he's come from bloody piss pot place in New Zealand with, called Greystoke. There's 20,000 people or something. Um, I don't even know they've got running water there. No idea. But I mean, there's certainly no squash there. So to come out of there and get the level he's got is extraordinary. And he's come here on his own. It's Obviously, mate, back to what we're talking about. Pretty, uh, you know, there was there was a time, you know, when I was, about when you, like I said, when I was ranked 95 in the world, he was he was probably 96. I think he was, uh, well, not even yeah. maybe that. He wasn't. He was. He certainly hung around the sort of 80s and 90s for for quite a long time. And then he obviously made that made a huge huge breakthrough that you know a lot of players down there don't will never end up doing but to get them managed to get himself to yeah the I watched him play when he's outside the top 100 I actually remember watching him and thinking I'd love to coach that guy um I actually remember thinking to myself I'd love to coach that guy um, because I could help him so much um because he had so many attributes and obviously he had that incredible strength and power and speed um and that desire um and he just he's just got a fantastic attitude an amazing attitude um so I knew he was gonna be good and you see that in people when he had a hunger, obviously. Um, he'd come over here, he'd trained on his own, he'd, he'd left home. Um, all those things that you think, this guy's going to be good. He just needs to point in the right direction. And, you know, obviously when Paul came to me, I think he was six in the world. Was he six or so? He was six, I think he was six. So he was already a fantastic squash player. What he wasn't doing is, is, is beating the guys and challenging quite the way he is now. Um, and it was a big decision for Paul, a very brave decision to come to someone like myself and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm not as good as I want to be. I want to improve. Um, I want to you know, work on my short game. I want to work on everything and look at all aspects of the game and make sort of a better squash player, more complete squash player, which is what he did. And, you know, when he came to me, um, I was quite surprised because there were some basics that he couldn't perform particularly well. For, for example, boast 
I said to him, when do you hit a boast ball? And he said, well, only if I really have to. And I said, well, that's exactly the time you shouldn't hit a boast. Um, you know, you need to have those options. You know, so now he plays a two or three or I mean, he's trickle boast. You know, he never played a trickle boast, obviously. He hadn't really got any hold. Um, his short game, his footwork. There's a lot of things that, that could improve. And it, obviously, I mentioned a lot of things there. And there are only sort of small improvements on those things. Obviously, it was exceptional. Um, but he was using his pace and power and speed to get on and play a drop. But it was very predictable. And against those top four guys, if you're predictable, yeah. you know, someone like Ali will just walk onto the ball. Um, so he needs those options where, although they might not, they might think they know where it's going, they're not 100% sure. So they actually have to wait till he's hit it before they're actually moving on the ball as he was about to hit it because they knew it was going there. You know, so his backhand drop was very poor and they get onto him just flick it over his head and he'd end up doing a lot of work. Whereas now they might think it's going to be a backhand drop, but he can also play cross short drive and straight drive or crazy still that little trick again. So, so that was a big difference with someone like Paul. Um, so there was a lot more to it than just changing his technique and his forehand. And people have gone on about the forehand. And yes, he has changed it a little bit, but they, they haven't been major changes. I mean, you know, everybody can improve it a little bit. And it was just a sort of small change I made to his forehand, open the face a little bit more, change the swing slightly, getting it a little bit straighter. Um, and a lot of it was actually footwork, getting his feet in a better position. So he's actually waiting for the ball to come onto him and creating a natural hold. Because um, people get obsessed with this sort of hold things and deception and they don't really understand what it is. And it's a difficult thing to teach, but once they're shown how to do it, I'm fortunate in that I can actually demonstrate how to hold a ball and still be reasonably deceptive myself. Um, so Paul, when he first came to me, he didn't really know where the ball was going very well, which was obviously good because he thought, well, this is interesting. Oh, this big fat bastard, Rob Owen, he's about 25 stone and he sent me the wrong way. So that was quite helpful, really, in some ways. Yeah, we've, uh, we certainly, we've all been there. Moving there, we switch across to the forehand side and uh, <laughs> game, it's game over. Yeah, it's a shame um, I have a backhand, really, isn't it? Well, that, that forehand three wall was, uh, was, it's pretty, it's still, I'm still, I'm sure, pretty impressive, even though you probably have it, might have a bit of ball for six months. Um, well, up to the age of 16, Jamie, I couldn't actually hit a backhand. I mean, the one thing that Jonah taught me was because he all he did was for probably about two years pin me down the backhand side. <laughs> I, I, barely, I barely hit a forehand for two years. And when I did, it was on exactly his terms. It was glued to the wall and I was deep and stretching for it. And out of desperation, I'd try and do something very clever and make a mistake, obviously. But I mean, was, what he did do was he... And that would be uh, very tight down the backhand. During the... So you played him every... You said you played him every day for two years and didn't beat him or something like that? <laughs> yeah, we, we, well, we, we didn't play every day, but we played regularly. Um, and it was... You know, I, I thought I was pretty reasonably good. And I was 17, 18, doing pretty well. And this guy was 40 when I was playing him. He won the British Close. It was extraordinary. Um, the only person in the modern day I can think of it like that is probably Nick Matthew, who I'm not sure how old Nick is now, 39. He's, he's 49. I'm probably 40 is he? Okay, well, I'm sure he's still playing to an incredible level. Obviously, I saw him, I seen him play for a bit, but I saw him play a year ago. Obviously, he was dropping off slightly, but still playing some extraordinary stuff. And I spoke to Nick the other day actually, and uh, bloody rang him up at his eight in the morning, and we were, we were talking about something. He's on the bloody exercise bike, you know. <laughs> And I said to him, I said, that's different between me and you, Nick. I'm walking the bloody dog. You're on the exercise bike. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're not going to meet anyone, anyone as professional and diligent as Nick, are you really? Uh... Well, Joan was the same. He was exactly the same mould. Um, you know, he was he was fanatical, but he thought about every single inch of the court. And as I say, I, I didn't beat him. Obviously, it comes with a psychological thing. But man, at times, I might have been two or up or whatever. And he just, he'd grind me in. And he was so clever because once he had you, in, in, the, in the web that was it you were finished you know he never let you off never ever let you off so it was a great lesson it was very tactical the way he played 
Um, very, very clever, highly intelligent, with a huge amount of skill. It always frustrated me when people said he hadn't got any skill and he was just a physical sort of beast and the fittest man in the world. You know, he was those things as well, but he was just such a good squash player. You know, his length. He had every shot in the book. He just chose not to play him a lot of the time. It was only later on in his career he played more shots um, or when somebody got tired. Was that, was that a bit, you know, a bit like looking at Nick? Was that something he added there when he was like well, late 20s? Did he, did he have that as well? Or did, did well, look, I, I don't know because I didn't see him play at that point. I didn't see him play at that point. But I mean, I'm quite sure when I watched him practice, I mean, I watched him practice, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, he would, he hit the ball, ball short beautifully with an enormous amount of cut. Um, he had some deception, which was taught, self-taught a lot of it. Um, and he wasn't a guy that was super deceptive, um, but he had a beautiful sort of slice across the court, you know, which faded away from you. He had an unbelievable lob, probably the best lobber ever. Um, him and Gogi, I imagine. Um, Nick, I would have actually up there as a great sort of lobber of the ball. Um, you know, there are some sort of obviously fantastic people who lob the ball, but Jonah was right up there, the best, and he used that. Um, but yeah, just an amazing squash player. And there's, I've been privileged. I'm very lucky because at 55, really, I've just seen some amazing squash players over the last 40 years. And, you know, I've talked to you about the last period with, you know, when Rami was playing Shaban and these guys. I think it was an incredibly strong era. We're privileged to watch that. And I think the next era will be, you know, people won't like this, but it'll be weak. The next, I think once this era sort of, it's, there's no one coming through, I can see it's, it's incredibly impressive. Certainly not in numbers. Um and I think the top guys now, it's a good level. It's not as good as it was sort of three or four years ago when uh, Mohammed first came through, when you had the Goldchester, you had the Knicks, you had the Jameses, Shvanas, uh, Rami at his best was just phenomenal. Um, so it's obviously very good now. It's not as good as that. And it's going to get worse. It's going to it's going to derail pretty rapidly, I think, in sort of four or five years' time. What, uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on sort of England squash or England's, England's future junior players coming through? Well, it's grim, obviously. It's very grim. I mean, um, the stats were hidden because we had Nick James, um, Selby, uh, Barker, um, you know, four very, very good squash players. Um, uh, the women the same. You know, we had Alison um, Waters. We had uh, Laura. Uh, SJ came through a little bit later. Uh, Jenny was around. Um, you know, four players there, top 10. Same in the men's. So we were spoiled. And, but they hid the stats behind them. I mean, Deck James is not great. Um, he's England number one. And he's, I would describe him as average. Um, compared to those guys, I mean, he he would have struggled to get in a team. Obviously, uh, when those guys were playing, he'd have been a five, six, seven. Um, similar to when I was playing with Marshall and Dell and those guys, you know, he'd be he'd be well behind those guys. Um, but it's what it is, you know. You can only beat what's in front of you, and that's what it is. But unfortunately, so we haven't got the number of juniors playing, we haven't got the sort of talent playing the game. Um, so you know, we've got the young man Sam Todd, who's exceptional. He's very, very good. So I hope he comes through. I've coached a couple of guys, you know. Hassan Khalil, I coach, is the best player in the country for his under-17. Um, and obviously, Charlie Lee, I think, will be very good. Um, but we're talking, we're, we're mentioning names now. Uh, what I want to be saying to you is, look, we've got 10 players under-19 coming through. We've got five players under-17. We've got some under-21s. Um, but I'm actually having to call out names. I mentioned three players there. Charlie's 23, wherever he is. Um, you know, Sam's 17, 18, wherever he is. And then there's someone else who's 15. Jonah Bryant was great, but he won the under-13 British Open. There's big gaps between these guys. Um, so some of these people have to step up. Um, so I think it's a it's going to be difficult for the next few years. Um, England squash are trying their best, but you can only work what you've got. Um, but you look at the stats, and I, I mean, they're young players. You know, George should be a lot better. Um, you know, Richie, these people, Pat, they're, they're sort of hovering around the 50 mark at the moment. And if you're going to be exceptional, I mean, James would have been top 20. Nick would definitely have been top 20 at their ages, probably top 10, I'm sure. Certainly James was. 
Um, James have probably been playing top level, top 10 level. They might already rank top 10 at probably 18, 19 years old. Yeah. Um, Nick would have been a million miles off at 20. I'm sure Barker was very good. Um, so that this, it's a worrying time for England squash. But I mean, it, it could be worse. We could be Australian. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty pretty bleak over there. I mean, they haven't got, like you said, same, even worse than England, really. They haven't got any, whatever the top sort of top coaching talent has all left, doesn't it? And uh, well, they've got some good coaches there now. There's some good, there's some good coaches, I think. There. Um, well, Boswell's you know, back, isn't he? So that's, that's got to be. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of people. You know, there's I don't know, there's you know, there's, there's some good girls there. Sarah Michelle's around there. Michelle Martin's been around for years. There's some great, great players there. Um, but again, they have just lost so many squash courts. Yeah. You know, I remember Jonah talking to me, and I think there was um, I can't remember what else now. There's 110 squash cents in Brisbane. I think Rod Martin told me now it's down to 10. Well, it's 120 down to 10. So, what chance you got? And you know, I went there. Um, I can't remember what it was now. Sort of a few years back, and the, the courts are sort of almost. There are some new places, but generally they're old clubs that need a lot of money spent on. They're derelict almost. Yeah. It's not going to encourage any kid to go down there. They let them. Attractive game, is it? Yeah, for a youngster. I remember you going there. I mean. What was that place you went to, Jay? Remember that place you went to, which was that was uh, somewhere in Tasmania, I think. Oh no, no, no. So it wasn't. Tasmania. It was one of the places. It was there was uh, another yeah. place just outside Melbourne, which was uh, it looked more like a mental yeah. asylum than a, a squash club. Yeah, I remember because you sent me a picture, and it was just that it was something like one place the cookers nest, wasn't it? Um, it was unbelievable. I mean, and to get there, you had to go through Middle Earth, and you had to fight dragons and stuff to get there. So it was particularly for me at the time. I was I was probably like thirty five. I think everyone else is yeah. everyone else is nineteen, yeah. twenty, and up and coming. Yeah. And I'm like sh I'm sharing a bunk bed yeah. or something with someone else. So I was I had to ask ask myself a few tough questions at that stage. Well, yeah. The only good thing was though, going through Middle Earth. You obviously looked a bit like Gollum at that point. You're losing your hair, weren't you? So was you could yeah. sort of get away with it. I was particularly skinny at that stage. As well. <laughs> yeah, you were particularly skinny. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, I mean, look, there's, there's, you know, as I say, it's, it's obviously the sport is monopolised by Egypt um, and they've got some amazing players and they've also got a great system, a lot of kids playing there. And as I said to you, it's a numbers game. You know, people going, what they're doing, they're doing differently. Or what they're doing differently is they're getting talented kids in numbers playing squash. If we had talented kids in numbers playing squash, we'd be just as good as Egypt. Um, all this rubbish about playing the Egyptian way and better, it's just garbage. Yeah. It's just numbers games. Australia in the 80s, there were just squash courts coming out of the and there was unbelievable just kids coming out the ears. There's so many Australian players, you know. Pakistan the same. You know, there's a lot of Pakistani players. And sadly now, really, if we're actually being honest about it, there's only really one squash playing nation, that's Egypt. And in, in you know, in our day we had Australia, Pakistan, Egypt and England. Um, four really, really strong, great squash playing nations. So to see someone like Australia decline is very, very sad. I think they've got to play in the top hundred game. Yeah, um, which is just desperate, you know. And again, that was hidden by a few years by Pilly and Costelli, who both did fantastically well, um, were great players. Um, but And that's it. Once they've gone, that's it. Nobody. And we need to see these people playing, don't we? All these countries. Hopefully America will produce more country uh, players. Um, Diego from Peru is, is a breath of fresh air. Um, and he's obviously with a freak because he's, he's just played his dad from a young age. Um, so it's, it's extraordinary that he's done what he's done. And hopefully he can just kick on and challenge the very best players and get to world finals and things like that yeah uh... so here we are at the midpoint in the chat with rob i hope everyone's enjoyed that first hour or so 
I think there's been some cracking insights and certainly some hilarious moments from the big man. Please get in touch uh, to let me know your thoughts and if you've got any topics that you'd like us to cover in our next conversation. The episode two will be released later in the week and we'll be kicking off with the Quickfire 11. So do not worry, that will feature.